In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. I write between like medical bottle prescriptions, changing gauze on your chest, really fogged out, ice packs, constipation, you name it. Um, as I was healing and even afterward, it was about the writing that could look nonlinear, that maybe didn't take a very conventional form. Like instead of writing really long bouts for an hour to two, I would be like, here's 15 minutes. Let me piece that together, put that in a folder put some darlings in there and then see if they create a new body. Let me Frankenstein this. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Kay Ulandai Barrett is a poet and performer whose work probes their experience as a trans-disabled Filipinx American. I first came across their work when I read their essay in the online publication Them about undergoing an emergency hysterectomy and the way that that procedure provoked them to think about mortality, physical transformation, and gender. 
And then that essay led me to their poetry. Their most recent collection, More Than Organs, won the 2021 Stonewall Honor Award and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award. Their writing examines inheritance, complex and complicated embodiment, gender, community making, and food, all of which come up in our conversation here. It's a conversation that's about joy and pain equally and self-nourishment, both through writing and food. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Kay Ulandai Barrett. You know, I had already uh, published my first book, When the Chant Comes, from a very small trans press, and it's like this beloved, beloved book. And on my way, thinking about top surgery and trans surgery, it was it's it wasn't so much something that was just given to me or an entitlement. I didn't have private insurance. I was on disability and workers' comp. Um, all my books so far have been written in sick beds, right? In these like spurious, very fast or achy, foggy places. Um, so when people ask me about my writing process, I'm like, whenever it's possible, whenever I'm able to dream. And so the same goes with the approach of my gender affirmation surgery, right? Like I did not want my chest any longer the way it was. It gave me dysphoria. It. What do we do, I think, is the question when you have a home or a body or something within you that just doesn't treat you like home or just doesn't feel the way you actually feel. And I think that's something I move with with all my writing, right? Like I had to fundraise for this surgery. This wasn't something that was like, yeah, let me just throw 7000 to $10,000 out of pocket. I had to have a collective fundraise for my body, right? And in so many ways, that's how I realize that that's how my approach to writing is. You need a care team. You need somebody to understand the wounds you're working with. Um, it's helpful to have people not necessarily handhold you, but people who've done it already, right? People who have their own experiences, the do's and don'ts, the pluses and deltas, what challenges didn't help them. And for me, I was working from a place of like, look, this needs to happen. This surgery has to happen now in a way that will bring me illumination. I wanted a surgery that brought me jubilance. All the other surgeries were done um, out of rushing, out of an able-bodied system that thought I was a deficit, out of shaming doctors, out of misgendering. And I think once I got my top surgery in the process of that, I had realized like my writing more and more is about how do I connect to the stories and to the people to help me move through this, right? I'm not alone. I'm not some solo epic journey. I actually needed hundreds of people to get to where I am. And I don't think, you know, in my writing, it's always been positioned as, uh, in a lot of ways, because I grew up as a political organizer, as a political tool, right? As a cultural tool. But facing the surgery, there was nothing I could do alone. There was nothing. I couldn't um, go to the bathroom alone. I couldn't bring a cup up to my face alone. You know, we joke, some of us who have the surgery that we're essentially like, T-Rex dinosaurs, right? We can move our, our limbs, our forearms up and down, nah, and that's that. And we growl and roar for food when the time comes. And that's really what I was. And even, even then when I was in pain, I thought, well, how am I going to write through this? Because the surgery is, you know, the healing time arguably is six weeks long, right? Um, I'm a trans working class person. I had to do universities and keynotes. I had to write and publish during that time. I had to travel while still healing, which is very unconventional. So 
I had to navigate new ways of thinking of writing my work, even if it's just, if it's voice recording, if it's working in notes using swipe, if it's dictation, I really had to reconsider what the heavy lifting of writing was, right? I think that um, anytime if somebody's been in surgery, it's a hard road to navigate, no matter the surgery, whatever the spiritual reasons were. And for me, it was just this epiphany, this realization that like, whoa, half my body is going to change. Like I had huge breasts, y'all. Like so much meat of me was going to be dissected and released. What does it mean to release that much of your body, right? What does that do to the way your spirit truly moves? Like just on page, yes. When writing, yes. And communicating your body and moving. My writing is super performative. So even adjusting my body after the surgery, the before, during, and after while performing. Breath control with, you know, scars on my chest and constant wound care while performing was really tiresome. So every word, every morsel was its own big moment, right? Even writing, you just, it just feels harsher and more radiant. And also it's just like, you can't let a word slip away because every word is a grind because your body is still working, right? Like all the skin, all the sutures, still going, going, nah, it's still healing. And so to write in that way, fully knowing that um, and fully knowing that I had other people around me to support me was very magical. I was injured at a job. And what happened through that was that I was in workers' comp essentially. And that supplemental system is important. And it also is belatedly just long. So if you need a surgery, and in my case, for my feet, for my wrist, for my elbow, what would normally take two to three weeks to book an OR took hmm, eight to 11 months, right? So you have to fight for your surgeries. You essentially are in constant advocacy work to fight, to stabilize and or just give your body what it needs. So I had multiple foot surgeries. I'm a trans person. I look real queer, whatever that means in the perceived world. So however anybody treated me moving forward in every step of the way from the waiting room to the front desk to specialists and surgeons to caseworkers, I would also bear the brunt of those impacts. So every surgery, you know, again, for those surgeries that I needed four to six weeks, six to eight weeks, I would be in bed care a lot. I would not be able to walk very much or I'd have crutches. I definitely couldn't lift things. So the way I've learned my body is to be really dynamic around a super walking world. Um, and I had to learn how, again, to lean on other folks and also how to have patience with myself. Like I was super a go-getter in this really like go, 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 capitalist, work the big gay, write the big books, do all the things. And when these systems impacted my body, not when my body changed essentially, but when the systems that I needed in my life to get these surgeries impacted my body, I was like, yeah, this is not, <laughs> this isn't sustainable. This isn't realistic. All the energy that I would use, let's say if I wanted to teach my students or um, draft my manuscript was talking to caseworkers, being on hold, arguing with doctors, arguing with assessments. Mm -hmm. um, there would be 
pop quizzes where caseworkers would come to your house and you'd have to prove you were disabled enough to receive funds, but not disabled enough not to work, right? And as a trans person, I relate to a lot of those tests. I feel that um, the heterosexual and cis world asks that of me. I think the literary world asks us to perform too. Here's so much trauma you can share without being too much trauma. And can you write it poignantly and prettily? that could perceivably be universal. So I'm constantly in those positions. And in, in those surgeries, I was definitely in that seat of like, prove yourself, but don't prove yourself. Do enough, but don't do enough. How much can we give you? Please, please, I need this. Um, with no, I'm still a person with full autonomy. Here are my pronouns again. Please refer to me to this name. Here are my pronouns again. Oh yeah, no, I don't use she. I've told you this six to seven times, right? Um, so I think that that navigation prepped me for gender affirmation surgery, which was hella different, which was everybody in that office knew why I was there, who I was, and what names and pronouns to use. They knew the body that I was coming in with. Um, and there was just a different kind of acceptance. So there was a stark difference. And I almost think there's a stark difference, too, in writing when you don't have a book. Like, I'm not academic. I don't have an MFA. So before my book, you know, in the literary world, it was like, oh, who is this? What is this? Oh, you know, it's identity stuff. But when I got my books, all of a sudden you have papers, right? And I think my gender affirmation surgery was that level of privilege and that level of celebration. It's a really conflicted time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Yeah, I I'm curious to know how you how you felt about that, how you navigated that kind of uh change of change of relationship to your body but also just your your writing and the the writing world. It's interesting to think of the parallel between getting gender affirmation surgery and and getting your book, right? And then in both ways you're able to sort of there's something that the world can now see that you have always been able to see about yourself. I'm a writer. I write, I write poetry and here's the book, you know, um, what, it, what was that experience I like? Think there was something about what happens when any group of people are told to hold back who they are, are told to hide who they are, are told that their bodies aren't good enough. That has to be a larger trajectory with how that impacts the world right? With how that impacts our uh, approach to craft. Like, how can I have craft discussions about poetry when I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing in my body and when there are concrete obstacles taking that over? So I think there is this way that that particular surgery for me, and I will use I statements, I felt in shock. Like, here's this beautiful thing I've wanted for so long, just like my book. Here's this thing I worked so hard for that nobody really, in a lot of ways, um, didn't believe I could do, right? And so there was this ascendance, this big spirit, arching, big monumental feeling. Like, 
this is what I've been waiting for. This is what I am built for. This is how I want to be built and how I want to embody myself. And in my writing, I think I gained more creativity, but also more adventure, right? I, I think also in my writing, I noticed how my poems changed and like, how did I negotiate my body or writing with the chest that I didn't feel at home with? And what happens when you have like actual loss of the body, when, when parts of yourself have to go, when you have to say goodbye to them? And I think in my second book, I really was like, what if this pain, what if this pain were a person? What if my chest were a person? What if this pain were a force of being, I don't know, a creature? How do I orchestrate those senses on the page? How do I give myself a thoughtful re-entry and welcoming to the body that was always there? That's essentially, you know, in re-circuitry that's trying to reconnect with itself in this new, new body. I think I approach poetry that same way. I'm like, if I can try to collectively build, get support from strangers in Missouri to Illinois to Tennessee to chip in 10 to $20 uh, for my chest, right? For me, then poetry is no different. It's a collective work because I don't have a systemic privilege, the finance, the class, the wealth, the parents, whatever that is. I had to use dynamic means in order to get my top surgery finished and also to get my work and my poetry together. I was very, um, during that time, I'm like, I'm going to do theater gigs as well, right? I'm going to be a stage manager. I'm going to teach writing workshops and political education. I sewed all these different ways to navigate to get to poetry. Everything was for the poetry, right? And I think for my chest, it was the same. Everything for that chest. So if I could sell poems just to get some money, sure. If I could write a small speech uh, for a keynote for this small queer convening in the middle of Idaho, sure. That's going to get me closer to my book. That's going to get me the chest I need. And those were the, it was little by little, piece by piece, person by community by collective. Both, both projects, arguably, uh, were done with such community intensity that I could not feel alone. Even in the high pain I was feeling, there was no way that I could feel alone in my writing because I had other people supporting me, cheering me on. And in a lot of ways, a lot of people just checking in on me page to page, week to week. How does that change the way the, the poetry itself, not, not just sort of the means of, means of creating the poetry, but the actual form and shape it takes um, on the page? Or, or your subject matter? Yeah, I really think that like, because I was in such high pain a lot, I write between like medical bottle prescriptions, changing gauze on your chest, really fogged out, ice packs, constipation, you name it, um, changing tubes with like blood and pus on the side of your body. So everything, as I was healing and even afterward, it was about the writing that could look nonlinear, that maybe didn't take a, a very conventional form. Like instead of writing really long bouts for an hour to two, I would be like, here's 15 minutes. Let me piece that together, put that in a folder, put some darlings in there and then see if they create a new body. Let me Frankenstein this, right? Let me try to figure out on the poems themselves. It can be one moment where I'm typing and I think I am doing 
a pantoum and then my body will blitz out and then it'll say, hey, like <laughs> zap, zap, zap on your nipples and all the other chronic pain I already have. You need to take a beat. You can't focus on this right now. Pause. So I would always have a time to sit, to think and wait and then come back to the piece. I could not be rushed because it wouldn't work. I'd be in too high pain. I'd be grimacing. I'd be passed out. I'd be fogged in meds. And that wouldn't build the work, right? So I had to say, hey, you know what? The pace of the way you write, but also the visual of the poems may not concede to what you're accustomed to, right? Some forms won't work. Literally, if I'm writing in a spasm and my fingers are moving and they glitch, well, maybe that's a new enjambment or an indent. So I try to choreograph, and at that time especially, choreograph whatever was happening with my body-mind with whatever the line could do. It was a, a beautiful negotiation. It was a careful choreography, I think. Yeah, I'm curious. To, can you think of an example of a poem where something like that happened, where that kind of constraint really shaped shaped the poem in a way that you now yeah, love? Yeah, I think... If I had to think about a poem that really did that, um, I feel that spasm of personal ethnography, and then I thought about Caden Clark, really was in those pauses of pain, was really written. The form and structure, you have prose block, you have quotes, it changes in structure and syntax with you know various italicizing, various spaces, and it's very conversational. So a lot of my poems in that pain too, is I'm talking to myself. I am recording. I am voice recording. I'm swiping with notes. So I feel like that poem in particular, um, as well as while looking at photo albums, which I think is a really intense piece where it's constantly with M dashes, that breath, that furtive, frenetic, strange rhythm, right? Is me in pain and me in pain having hard memories. Me in pain, having hard memories, thinking about family that could not be there for my book, that could, could not be there for my chest and for the ways I'm celebrating myself. So what do I do when I miss them? I'm going to write to them. That's going to be a dialogue, but I'm in pain, yo. So here we go. It's like before everyone died, where am I? In my family, first definition I learned was, and it's just like constant moving through conversation, sometimes out of breath and sometimes wincing. So you see that almost jarring yet sing-song way throughout a lot of the pieces in my second book. I was, it's funny, I was just looking at, while looking at photo albums this morning, and I'm hoping, would you feel comfortable reading some or, or all of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. While looking at photo albums, Christmas Eve, 2016. Before everyone died in my family, first definition I learned was my mother's maiden name, Ulandai, which literally means of the rain. And biology books remind us pouring has a pattern, has purpose. Namesake means release. And for my mother meant flee, meant leave. Know exactly what parts of you slip away. Drain sediment of a body is how a single mama feels. On the graveyard shift, only God is awake, is where my family banks itself. A life rooted in rosaries like nuns in barricades scream, people power, one out of five, leave to a new country. 
women in my family home, in my heart, like checkpoints, which is what they know, which is like a halt, not to be confused for stop, which is what happened to my mom's breath when she went home. For the last time, I didn't get to hold her hand as she died. I said I tried, just translates to, I couldn't make it. In time, I tell myself, ocean salt and tear salt are one and the same. I press my eyes shut. Cup, ghost howl, cheek splint, wood worn, which is to say, learn to make myself a harbor. Anyway, once I saw a pamphlet that said, what to do when your parent is dead. <laughs> I couldn't finish reading. But I doubt it informs the audience what will happen, which is to say, you will pour your face and hands and smother your mother's scream on everything you touch. Turn eyelids into orbs. Go. Paddle to find her. like that poem has so so much of what your poetry at large carries which is um dialogue with family which is consideration of things like breath and body and tears and cheeks and pain um eyelids and also uh so much of the sensuality of food too ocean salt and tear salt there's so much incredible food um in your work and i i i guess i wanted to hear you talk a little bit about what you feel the connection is between this these these big themes in your work of family embodiment and and food i think my best poems are about food honestly jordan I just just to be honest like i think that's the one time besides maybe even more than performing poetry or writing poetry or witnessing poetry is eating and cooking that make me feel like all of my parts in their whole being are present. There's something about food because I'm using all the senses, right? There's something, there's a piece of nostalgia where because most of my family is dead. And so for the hard things that happen, whether it's the transcendence in this, the new books that I will publish to having my partnership to anything big that's happening, surgeries and galore included. The one thing I think about is like, what do you do after a gig? When I host somebody at the Asian American Writers Workshop in person pre-COVID, what do we do afterwards? Korean barbecue, nah? That's what we do. After an event, we process what happened. And food is that way that brings in people who may not be interested in poetry or for me may not be interested in cultural conversation. But we all have connections to some type of family, even if it's chosen family, some type of cultures that held us and developed us, right? Before the words became pages, we were eating, or we were trying to eat, or we're trying to get food, or somebody was bringing us food, or somebody was growing food. So for me, 
I feel like the nourishment and the utter sensations, the compelling enchantment and heartbreak that food and body memory just do naturally for so many of us. And even if you don't like to eat, then there's trauma in that. There's a conversation in that. Well, why? What about nourishment is difficult? What made it difficult? What made it a privilege or a structure? So for me, food is this way where I think I'm actually my best self, my least performative self. And so writing food is this conduit to my family. It's, it was our peace treaty. You know, somebody could dislike my haircut, not like that I'm queer, that um, was dislike, you know, the way I was politicizing myself or have a different ideology in the way I protest. But when we got down to the table, we could critique the food in front of us, right? Ah, this crab is too salty. Ah, this rice is too soft. Oh, this is delicious. What did they do? What do you think was in there? So food just for me, I think there's this sensation of bringing us back alive because that's what it does, right? It keeps us going. It's more than fuel, but it's also this cultural conversation. It's this dialectic that happens, at least for me as a Filipinx person um, whose family was in mixed migrant status, anywhere between nine to 14 people at our kitchen table had to share food. That means multiple people had to cook it and share space together. That means multi-generations together, working jobs, going to school, whatever we were doing, we sat down and we would just invest and just be in this beautiful, hella sumptuous place together. Like, haven't y'all ever had like a really good meal with somebody you're with or gone out to eat and the food was so good, you didn't even have to talk. Like, what are words? It was just quiet. And I think food does that in a way that maybe other tasks don't do. Right. It's one of the rare spaces where you can share an experience of pleasure, even with people with whom your your relationship might be really tough at the moment or conflicted. You know, like family dinner is a place where even if there are lots of things going wrong in those relationships and you can't really talk to each other about any number of things, you can sit down and you can experience pleasure together, um, which is which is pretty major. I think that you know the exp- the physical experience of pleasure is as much a kind of communication um, as anything else, and and having that in the absence of other kinds of connection can be really powerful. Absolutely, I really think it's too. It's like when you're denied pleasure too, like on a systemic level, when you're not able to you know, access joy the way other people can access joy, food becomes this centripetal, important, necessary force for you. It really becomes a way for you to to really connect emotional connection with people who otherwise aren't allowed to have those things. And for me, even in my writing, like I'm writing this new project and it's called Eat Good For Me. And it's what my mom used to tell me when I was traveling. Like anytime I had a poetry event, toured she'd be like oh eat good for me enough huh like what is the food like how are these rich people eating you're in a new city try something new and so there's also something really daring about food that some of us we can go home to our home recipes and also see where the new revisioning is in those recipes and then try new things and then bring it back like that was my assignment it wasn't always like oh how did you do on stage or how did that poem land my mom's like Good, good, good. I know you did good. How was the food? And so I think my mom was just very, my family was hyper confident of my skills in that way, even though I was an artist, shrug. But 
the interest was you're getting to explore things that I don't get to explore. Give me a report back. What is that like? Like if I'm going to University of uh, UC Berkeley and there are hello Pinoy, Pinay, Filipino people there, mom's like, what are they eating? How did they prepare that? Where are they from? So food is also for me, like in that joy is a naming. It's a cultural lineage because it's about where you're from. Just because I'm from one part of the Philippines, I can be another Filipino person who makes a noodle dish, punts it, and they will add some shit that I am not about. And they will think it's the best thing in the world. And I will probably not feel that way. But it's because about it's about where we're from and how we've been taught to taste. And I think, you know, that kind of school, that kind of styling about what you're putting in your body is something so beautiful to write about. I, I'm really, it always brings me wonder. It always impresses me. Uh, it's a place where I feel very humble because I'm not a chef or a cook. I just love food. I was just raised by cooks and chefs and people in domestic work who cooked for other people. So food for me is always that that beautiful, gorgeous level of curiosity, but also like just this interesting discovery. Like sometimes I sit and eat things and I'm like, man, my mom would love this shit. And then other times I'm like, oh, yeah, she would think that that was very incorrect. Why? I, I talk to myself, even when I'm making recipes and I'll write, write down recipe poems, like I'm American, huh? so I'm putting kale in adobo. Like I can hear all my ancestors shriek and like cry and wave their hands up in, you know, blasphemy. It's, it's a dialogue that I love about food. So there is the joy about it, but there's also, I like the tenuousness of it. Like, what, what does it mean that I can eat foods that my family, I can order, I went to a farmer's market the other day and I got some rainbow eggs. So there were blue ones, brown ones, light brown ones, spotted ones. They were all really cute. And my mom had never had those eggs. And I was like, huh, I'm eating these eggs for my family. Huh. And that was a response. And now there's going to be an essay about it. Like the access to, the conversation of, the lack of, how do we bridge those things? And I think food, especially in climate justice right now, who gets access to these things? Who's able to talk about it? Who gets to control recipe, seeds, growing? Honestly, those, those dynamics aren't very different from the literary world now. Who gets to control those things? Who gets to eat the best? When I was in surgery, I couldn't cook on by myself. And if you know me, I am a kitchen top. I love my kitchen. I love going to the grocery store, going to farmers, talking about recipes at farmers markets. And so to have ultimately four weeks without any control uh, <laughs> was a very big challenging piece. More than changing my my scar care and my gauze and my wound care, um, going to the bathroom was really like letting go right? Letting go of meals and having my friends know me well enough and care for me well enough to do that. And I remember thinking, I'm like, oh, I'm so stubborn. This is what I like to do. This is how I eat. This is how I cook. This is how I structure. This is where everything goes in my kitchen because I'm an earth sign. I am no different when it comes to poetry and when it comes from writing and editing. I am so skeptical sometimes of that collective care. Something about me feels like when I create writing, it might not ever be good enough. So I'm on it all the time, 24-7.
and something I've had to learn. And my top surgery helped me learn. It was like, sometimes it's not going to be just perfect. It's not going to be as shiny and polished and refined as you want it to be. You just got to let it go. Give it to another set of hands, another body, another spirit, and let them and trust them to move with you. And I think that that's the way for surgery post-op care. I think that's the way with book writing too, you know, going to a fellowship, seeking your mentors, getting whatever comrades or cohorts or friends you have and being like, hey, this is what I did with this piece or this essay. I see where it's not working or I tried to do this and in this poem, it's not landing. Um, and letting it be, you know, there's this funny Filipino saying, that's not so funny, but it's like, like, leave it to God. And for me, God and I aren't always the closest homies, but I'm very like, leave it to the spirit, leave it to who you're trusting. And I think there's something that food does. I think there's something that writing does where, you know, you're just crossing your fingers, throwing in some spices, hoping that you'll get something that lands, that makes you feel that way. And in this way, hoping that your friends, your support system, your editor, your mentors will understand the full wave of what you're trying to bring the full wave of how you want to be nourished and nourish other people. I think there's something really indicatively powerful about that, but also deeply, deeply humbling. So I, for one, I've been trying to recreate my mom's arroscaldo recipe since she died. There is no way it could be absolutely perfect, but I did. I have come close to the point where I literally jump out of my seat. and It's like, ah, oh, it's almost like you can taste that person in the room, right? It's almost when I'm recreating a recipe or recreating a poem, it is like an epistle. I'm very epistolary. You can, in all my books and all my pieces, I'm always in some sort of dialogue that I'm not able to have in the physical presence with them. So I'm trying to challenge that piece of like, what does it mean to be that kind of dynamic where my family moved here in the middle of rural Midwest, Mackinac City, and then Chicago, Illinois. And there were some vegetables they couldn't find in the grocery store, right? So what did my auntioli and my Lola, my grandma and my mom had to do? They had to grow it themselves, somehow find the seeds or, you know, substitute, right? And navigate the world as they were. And so I think there's some level of finesse that we're doing in our memory. There's some memory finesse there. There's some level of pivoting that occurs both when you're writing, both when you're cooking, both when you're, and also when you're eating, where there's this pivot of what you know and what you grew up with. And then there's this chasing or this finding or this uncovering to get back to that place. Even if it's incremental, like even if it's just a minute, when I had that arrosfalo with a perfect bit of ginger, just enough green onion crunch, a good little burnt savory of that crispy garlic. I was like, mm, okay, I am nine again and I have a cold and I stayed in from school and my mom just brought me this bowl. And because I can't be in person, I can't be gifted these things. There's this <laughs> funny enough, like hella hunger to try to get back there or to feel that place. And I think food does that. It, it telepathically and beautifully and painstakingly does that. And when you write about it for me, there's, I feel like, and I also talk to a lot of queer and trans Filipinx people who have tension with their family, right? And um, some of those tensions, again, are eased at the kitchen table. When I used to be an organizer, the first thing I was taught wasn't just like, you know, you have to meet people where they're at, but also Chicago people, Midwestern people in the winter, nobody's going to come out to a training or to a poetry reading. Your food needs to be good. 
Like you need to bring it. A potluck is a cultural tool. And so for me, when I eat and when I write, there are always going to be good snacks involved because I understand the, the fervor it takes and what kind of memories I'm trying to channel and what kind of ancestors I'm bringing to the table. Because once I write about them and I write about the food I missed with my mother or what my auntioli used to grow, like the whole world is going to know it. It's no longer just mine, right? If we record this segment and you're saying, hey, I'm trying to make my grandmother's tortillas in the way she did, it's not just our own little secret anymore or what we share with our intimate chosen family. It's like, oh, the whole world knows. And there's something, again, about being a writer and artist where the, the secret, quiet, hungry parts of you are then known to the world. It's like you're sharing the table with them, but it's also this really scary piece. How does that feel to you right now with what you're working on? You know, I, I feel like I lean into poetry a lot, um, pre-writing as I go. Little high school student, I was the king of the run-on sentence. So poetry was a beautiful <laughs> segue for me to be like, indent, how do we texturize this on the page? What does a white page look like? And so now I'm writing a lot of essay and that storytelling, it's so interesting to see how I'm uncovering um, the different ways that I write in surprising ways, but also the surprising memories that I really do miss, the different smells I miss. I don't know if you've ever had this sensation, but I don't know. I'll, I went in the elevator the other day and I smelled this smell and it smelled exactly like um the back porch of my childhood. I don't know what created that smell. It's, it was a mixture of fried fish and like, I don't know what else. It smelled so good. And I was like, I haven't had that smell in like 20 years, right? How do I bottle that up? Smell is so tricky, you know? So, so evasive smell as a sense. It's one of the hardest things to teach as a writer. Like, but how do I take that and then put it in an essay format? Oh, so tricky. I'm very challenged, but I really love what, is coming up to the surface. Um, I'm a crier. If I watch Grey's Anatomy, any movie that involves tears, I cry. So writing also is a lot of, there's a lot of crying. Like, oh, what don't I remember? What am I missing? How am I not hitting that note? Like if I perform a set in that poem I just read, I want to make sure there are three to four emotional beats that hit, that gut you, that are a, a fulcrum, a shift in emotion. If I'm not getting to that sensation, there's something about my memory not making that connection with my page. And I think that's the frustrating part is this feeling of losing it. Like, oh, this, I'm not going to get that sensation again. Not just the same way. And that's fair. That's fair. We never recreate exactly because it's always our own version, right? But you just want a speck of that moment, just a spark of it, just a little morsel of it. And I think that's what I'm trying to aim to in my new writing. Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavard of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.